2: Welcome to Big Time Dicks, the show where we take a closer look at the laws and lawmakers fucking up your life. I'm Prat Gupta, senior reporter at Jezebel. Joanna is in LA this week prepping for the Work It podcast festival. So this week's co-host is Katie McDonough.
1: Hi, I'm Katie McDonough, a politics reporter at Splinter, which is part of the beautiful blog family known as Gizmodo Media Group.
2: So this week, Big Time Dicks is going to LA. We're going to be presenting in the Work It Women's Podcast Festival by WNYC. And if you're in LA this week, come out and see us. We are going to be presenting on Thursday, October 5th in the afternoon. And we're going to be talking about how we make and produce this podcast every week. Okay, so last week, Donald Trump insulted Carmen Eulin Cruz, the mayor of San Juan, Puerto Rico, all because she wants Donald Trump to remember that Puerto Rico exists and needs aid after being ravaged by the hurricane. You know, we're dying here. We truly are dying here. And and I keep saying it, SOS, if anyone can hear us, you know, if
3: Mr. Trump can hear us, let's just get it over
2: with and get the ball rolling. President Trump, uh, tweeting from his golf course today in New Jersey, responded with this. The mayor of San Juan, who was very complimentary only a few days ago, has now been told by the Democrats that you must be nasty to Trump.
0: The mayor's response to the events unfolding this morning, quote, the goal is one, saving lives. This is the time to show our true colors. We cannot be distracted by anything else.
1: I mean, Trump was a very busy boy on Twitter this week, and it was sort of alarming to see the jumps that he was making from issue to issue. So, after insulting the mayor of San Juan and insisting that actually he's doing a great job, that his administration is doing a great job in Puerto Rico, he jumped right back into the NFL, and then he jumped right back into the Alabama primary, and then he jumped right back into threatening nuclear war with North Korea.
2: And it just. On every issue where you think that there would be no controversy, no, nothing, like there's only one side, like Puerto Rico needs aid right now. Like that's, that's a fact. That's not like a debatable, like opinion issue. Like they're ravaged by a hurricane. They're devastated. They don't have any resources and they need federal funding. You'd think that would be a pretty non-controversial position for a president to take.
1: But this administration is the no, but actually it's very good administration, right? So you look at the healthcare bill that was like, you know, failed now, but threatening to block grant Medicaid, like decimating coverage for millions of people. And then Trump describes it and he's like, no, actually it's very good. And so when you're talking about the response to disaster in Puerto Rico, it is precisely the same script, which is you say it's bad, but I'm here to say that actually it's very
2: good. Our Dick of the Week this week is Hurricane Maria and the Jones Act and how they have wrecked havoc on Puerto Rico. And we'll be talking to Dr. Yarimar Bonilla, an associate professor of anthropology and Caribbean studies at Rutgers University, about the impact of the hurricane in Puerto Rico.
3: You have people in Puerto Rico right now who feel completely abandoned, completely exposed and at risk without even the most basic services that a government should be able to provide its population.
2: Let's get into our week in weenies. It's a great honor for me to introduce
1: a new weenie to the mix, um, Roy Moore, who emerged victorious from Alabama's uh, Republican special election for who was going to run in the general to replace Jeff Sessions' seat. Um, So Roy Moore, for those not familiar, is a firebrand, which is what bad reporters call people who think being gay should be illegal, being Muslim disqualifies you from serving in Congress, and that God did 9-11.
2: Like— If we could have Jeff Sessions back as Alabama senator, because Roy Moore is now our choice, like I would take Jeff Sessions. I mean, Roy Moore. It's as if like a hell
1: mouth opened and and demanded to be filled with more hell. So I don't know that we. I don't know that they're on balance like where we will emerge. You know, I think that like in all likelihood, it seems like this guy is probably going to win against the Democrat Doug Jones. But so, I mean, yeah, Moore was the Bannon-backed candidate who pummeled the McConnell-backed and then Trump-backed because McConnell told him to back him, Um, candidate who was a giant man named Luther Strange. And so Moore is obviously a really frightening addition to the GOP Senate pool, but it's not like Strange was some kind of a moderate. You know, As AG, he spoke out against the uh, SCOTUS decision
0: on equal marriage. Okay, 81% as recently as 2006 said it was the definition. They haven't changed their opinion. The only thing that's changed is one federal judge has come in and tried to force upon the state something which she cannot do. Her opinion is not law. Your Honor, what this comes down to is you didn't have to do this. You've created a basis to do it, but you didn't have to do it. I had to do this. You had to do it, do this. This is... well, to do it because it
2: matters it's... to you personally. I... This is no, just like the Ten Commandments situation. My... You were told by the federal <laughs> courts, remove the Ten Commandments from the public square. You didn't want to. And you wound up losing your job because of it. But on principle, you felt you did the right thing. Isn't that true?
1: He shares a lot of these same culture war ideologies. He just packages them really differently and maybe doesn't feel quite as much as Moore does that like God is telling him directly (laughs) and specifically and individually what to do at any given moment. But it's just like a reminder of what kind of political positions then become described as moderate or establishment after like the conservative talk radio's like worst instincts become the new center. So we've, you know, this was like a loss for the establishment. And it's like very, very jarring to think about what is now being described as moderate in the Republican Party because Roy Moore is now like the right wing of it.
2: Like if you were to ask me to just like draw a character who's racist, right? Like, I would just imagine somebody like Jeff Sessions. I'd be like, oh, old white guy who, like, says racially insensitive things and, like, doesn't understand that they're racist. But if you ask, like, Jeff Sessions to draw somebody who he thinks is racist, we'd end up with Roy Moore. Yeah, That is what— I'm sure that, like, (laughs) Like, Jeff Sessions— Like, Jeff Sessions probably even thinks this dude is racist. Yeah, like, a (laughs)
1: dyed-in-the-wool racist is probably going a little bit like, yeesh, when you hear some of what Roy Moore has been up to for the last few years. (laughs) Or just, like, kind of, like, pulling at his collar and being like, I guess I wouldn't have said it that way. Because, again, like, I think that, by and large, they share— most of their political positions are right. not entirely dissimilar. Uh, it's just that Roy Moore just really lets that flag fly. <laughs> Roy Moore
2: is the unfiltered id of the He is, the he is Party.
1: Jeff Sessions, specifically, his id.
2: <laughs> yes. <laughs> Speaking of Jeff Sessions, one of our favorite weenies on the program, he is back again. As a reminder, in case anybody forgot, Jeff Sessions, who is the head of the Department of Justice, he's a top lawyer— In America, he is a man who wanted to pursue criminal charges against a woman who laughed during his confirmation hearing, Desiree Farouz. So, keeping that in mind, last week at Georgetown, he gave a speech about how important free speech is and how we're losing the rights to free speech in this country. The same week that Donald Trump and the Trump administration was condemning the NFL protests, which were a demonstration of free speech. (laughs) And Jeff Sessions, (laughs) the real promoter of free speech here, what kills me is that he gave this speech in a completely not free setting. Like, to get into the meeting, like the hall where the speech was happening, you had to have been, like, pre-approved and pre-screened and all the questions that people asked were, like, pre-submitted. So there was literally nothing, like, free about this. And then also he quoted... Martin Luther King in his speech.
0: Dr. Martin Luther King would call them the martyred heroines of a holy crusade for freedom and human dignity. And I urge you, really, urge you to go back and read that eulogy and consider what it had to say to each of us today. This is the true legacy and power of free speech that has been handed down to you. And you could be sure uh, it made people uncomfortable when Martin Luther King spoke about segregation, particularly in the South.
2: Pretty sure Martin Luther King's widow protested against Jeff Sessions several decades ago because she was like, no, he's racist.
1: I think that like it's really encouraging to me that Jeff Sessions and like Jonathan Chait have now teamed up together to say that Like, what kids are doing on college campuses is bad. Like, they have an an ally in the fight now. So, you know, go team.
2: Yeah, so Jeff Sessions was basically, like, decrying college campuses and how they've become these, like, protest zones and everybody needs, like, their own safe spaces and how, like, you know, they don't encourage free thought and free speech anymore. But that's very coded words for they are shouting down bigotry? Mm-hmm. Like, because who is it? who are the people who need safe spaces? It's not white men. Jeff Sessions is a white man who's saying and creating a safe space for him to spout his ideas that are inherently xenophobic and racist. And then when people criticize them, he's like, well, it's free speech. But then my right to free speech is greater than your right to free speech is essentially what he's saying. So in Jeff Sessions' speech, uh, he talked about the
1: echo chamber of political correctness and homogenous thought, and then talked about college campuses as a shelter for fragile egos.
0: Freedom of thought and speech on American campus are under attack. The American university was once the center of academic freedom, a place of robust debate, a forum for the competition of ideas. But it is transforming into an echo chamber of political correctness and homogeneous thought A shelter for fragile egos.
1: Which is like the most beautiful and amazing thing that a member of the Trump administration could ever say about anybody else. It was like
2: just, it was a beautiful moment. It was like so uplifting. That's so interesting, Katie, because I I actually graduated from Shelter for Fragile Egos University. That's so funny. (laughs) I did my senior thesis on sheltering fragile egos. Katie, we have so much in common. Actually,
1: I would like to say that most women probably did their lifetime thesis. <laughs> in sheltering other people's fragile egos. Moving on to Tom Price, fancy boy and former Health and Human Services Secretary, uh, who resigned on Friday after it was revealed that he had spent more than $400,000 in taxpayer money on private and military jets. And this is including um, one flight between D.C. and Philadelphia, which I believe is like a 40-minute flight that cost $25,000. for a 40-minute flight. Oh, my God. Um, So this is just for those who aren't entirely familiar with Tom Price. This is a man who wants to block grant Medicaid, which will kill people um, because he says the government doesn't have enough money to fund the program. So this is the person who spent $25,000 to get himself from D.C. to Philadelphia, which, by the way, is a beautiful bus ride or Amtrak trip as well. So I would just say that austerity is a disease. It poisons your brain. Um, So Price is not the only Trump cabinet member uh, who just, like, fucking loves private planes so much. Scott Pruitt, uh, Steve Mnuchin, and Ryan Zinke have all had their own scandals around flying in private jets. Um, So this is just like an administration and a cabinet full of fancy boys, and they are acting, uh, as predicted, like fancy boys. Trump is really draining the swamp. But what's interesting is the way that, like, there was, like, in all the kind of political roundtable shows, they were like, well, Trump did not like the optics of this one bit. (laughs) When they're talking about his resignation, they're like, Trump didn't like that he had done this, and they didn't like that he'd only offered to pay for his seat. And I was like, what are you guys talking about? Like, Donald Trump objected to the appearance of, like, excess and, like, disconnect (laughs) from regular American people. Like, this is... This is a joke, right? Like we're <laughs> we're joking now, um, but no, it was it was very serious. <laughs>
2: Our Dick of the Week this week is the Jones Act, Hurricane Maria, and the really woefully inadequate response to uh, the devastation in Puerto Rico. Before we get into that, I wanted to just quickly address the Las Vegas shooting. We're still learning a lot about what happened, but we know that the suspect was a man named Stephen Paddock. He was in his 60s, uh, a white male who is not being described by news outlets as a terrorist despite being responsible for what is now the deadliest mass shooting in America that has killed over 50 people and wounded hundreds um, in Las Vegas on Sunday night. Despite this, we don't have any serious gun reform in the country. Um, We would love to address this issue in a future podcast episode. This week, we are going to talk about Puerto Rico, but we did just want to mention this tragedy and that our thoughts are with the victims this week.
1: Now joining us is Dr. Yarima Bonilla, Associate Professor of Anthropology and Caribbean Studies at Rutgers University and author of Non-Sovereign Futures and co-founder of the Puerto Rican Syllabus. Dr. Bonilla, thanks so much for being here. Um, So before we talk about Hurricane Maria's impact on Puerto Rico, can you talk to us a bit about the uniquely precarious economic situation that Puerto Rico is in right now and also specifically just the debt crisis and the United States' role in that?
3: So... In in thinking about the vulnerability that Puerto Rico has in relationship to these storms, I think it's really important to think about the different kinds of vulnerability that exist. So, of course, there's the environmental vulnerability of how a Caribbean island is exposed to tropical, you know, climate forces of this kind. But then there's also the economic vulnerability that Puerto Rico has been in due to the debt crisis. So um, in terms of its economic vulnerability, it's important to remember that Puerto Rico has been in this decade-long recession, which means that the government had not been in a position to take care of its infrastructure, to maintain things like the power grid and the water system. All this uh, government infrastructure was already in a very fragile state when the storm hit. And in addition, aside from the government, the population is also in an incredible socioeconomic vulnerability. Uh, Puerto Rico has higher poverty rate than, than any state in the U.S., double that of even the poorest state in the U.S. And um, a lot of the folks who, who in Puerto Rico right now, in addition to those who rely on government assistance, you also have a huge number of Puerto Ricans who are working poor, who live paycheck to paycheck, who are supplementing income, doing things like driving Uber, which recently arrived and has become very popular. And so these are folks who depend on a, on a weekly paycheck. At, at times they depend on daily income coming in through tips or through um, different kind of services that they provide. And so a lot of these folks, they hadn't received any income since the first hurricane hit. Since Irma, and so many of these folks haven't received income since the beginning of September, and so they didn't have the necessary funds to prepare themselves for a storm. They didn't have money to buy um, large uh, reserves of food and water and and to fill their tanks with gas. When the storm hit, they were already in a very precarious position. And at this point, it's been over a week that they have not received income or had the ability to buy uh, goods that they need, also because many of the stores are closed.
1: It's just another example of the way that people talk about uh, natural disasters, which then covers up what is actually a political disaster that's been a long time in the making.
3: Yes, absolutely. And we've seen this before in places like Haiti and New Orleans, where these storms hit and they aggravate the already existing socioeconomic conditions of these places. You know, um, President Trump tweeted that uh, Florida and Texas were doing very well after the storm. And I mean, I'm not entirely sure if, if that's true. And I'm sure there's a lot of people in these places that are not doing well at all. But the ability of these places to kind of bounce back from these natural disasters has a lot to do with how they were doing socioeconomically before the storms hit.
2: So, um, yeah. So can you tell us what is happening in Puerto Rico right now and what the devastation looks like?
3: First of all, we d- we still don't fully know because to a great extent, there's there's all these these folks in these towns that are completely disconnected, completely off the grid, with no phones and no ability to drive out because the roads are blocked by debris. So we still don't know the full extent of it. But what we do know is that uh, uh, the majority of Puerto Ricans right now do not have access to running water. Um, they, they and they don't just not have access to drinking water; they don't have access to running water of any sort. And so they are collecting rainwater in the places where they can, or they're going to rivers and creeks to bathe, to uh, wash their clothes <laughs> do, and and get drinking water. And this is a big concern because um, the water in a creek is not necessarily fit for drinking. And so there's people who are severely exposed to dehydration and to illness right now because of a lack of access to water. And it's not just um, that people need aid in the sense that they don't have the Financial resources is that they don't have access at all. Stores are closed because they don't have electricity. So there's really no way to procure drinking water in a lot in large parts of the island. Um, in addition, you have uh, these floodwaters that have not receded, that are contaminated, that are that are a mix of rainwater sewage water and and gasoline and people are waiting in these waters to 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 try to get access to food and to help each other other folks are trapped in um you know second third fourth floors waiting for someone to come rescue them and and still like 10 days in still kind of living off the meager supplies that they had before the storm in addition you have hospitals that don't have ele- electricity and don't have gasoline to run their generators you have entire wards of people on life support and people in intensive care who have died because there's not enough power to supply the equipment that was keeping them alive. You have folks who have had a relative die in their home and are unable to get that relative out of their home. People have been burying their loved ones in the in their backyard. And, and this happened in, in places like uh, New Orleans as well in these moments. Then you also have morgues that don't have sufficient power to embalm the dead or refrigerate the dead. So they're having to do uh, quick funerals. And there's people who are not even able to attend the funerals of their loved ones or even know that they have died because there's such a level of lack of communication. And so you have people in Puerto Rico right now who feel completely abandoned, completely exposed and at risk without even the most basic Services that a government should be able to provide its population.
2: So, you recently wrote in the Washington Post about how some politicians view a hurricane as an economic opportunity. Can you expand on that idea?
3: It was curious. You know, months before the storm hit, I had interviewed this wealth manager in Puerto Rico who was very upbeat about the economic climate because, you know, the kinds of clients that she has, they were already doing well because many of them had taken their money out of Puerto Rican bonds early, had put them in the U.S. stock market, which has gone up since Trump's election. And so she, she said this phrase, she says, all we need now is a hurricane. And it was so puzzling to me that she would see it this way. But of course, she was referring to how now uh, federal aid is being expected to come in. There will be reconstruction projects. And so the people who will benefit from that money will be local wealthy contractors, people, for example, in the hotel industry who will be housing FEMA workers. So kind of the the economic sectors that are are the ones that she is in relationship with as a wealth manager. So they're surely going to see a, a surge of funds, right? Now, that one one could be optimistic and think, oh, that will help, you know, resolve a lot of Puerto Rico's problems overall. But the truth is, as we've seen in the past, the kind of economic problems that these societies face are usually not resolved with these influx of funds. If anything, socioeconomic divisions are sharpened. Um, we saw this, for example, in in New Orleans after Katrina, where a lot of folks were displaced from their homes. Public services such as public education were gutted. And so we can we can imagine the same thing is going to happen in Puerto Rico.
1: I wonder if you could talk to us about what a post-disaster acceleration of these patterns, privatization, the gutting of the public infrastructure, might look like um, in the wake of the hurricane.
3: The fact is that, well, this this environmental crisis, That, of course, you know, never let a good crisis go to waste. But so this environmental crisis is coming in the wake of an already existing economic crisis that people were not letting go to waste. The way the U.S. government responded to Puerto Rico's economic crisis was not really by issuing any kind of assistance or, or a bailout package, even though that's what some claim, but rather by imposing uh, policies of austerity and putting into place this oversight board that its main goal was to ensure that the Puerto Rican government would reduce its services, reduce its payroll and make it liquid again so that it could service its debts. In the wake of the storm, the, the head of the oversight committee, she issued a statement saying, well, this is, you know, we, we have to continue our focus on reducing the size of the government. And so and, and, and we have to have a serious, you know, discussion about what it is that the government, what services the government can offer. And so the first line of attack for them was the university. Um, And it's become clear that they they don't want to offer the kind of public education access at at the level of higher education that Puerto Rico has had in the past. And so, uh, you know, and and it's important to say that Puerto Rico, they have the highest number of Pell Grant recipients because people can't afford college otherwise. And so they gutted the university's budget and this led to huge strikes among students that, you know, that lasted for months. And so that was one line of attack. They also it's been made clear that they wanted to privatize the electric grid. And so immediately after the storm, that was one of the things that they said, you know, look how deficient this electric system is. We must privatize it. Other things that have been debated, um, things related to public transportation, such as uh, ferry systems to Puerto Rico's outer islands. One can imagine there could also be a privatization of bus services, although um, we've seen in other parts of the United States how um, Public transportation it's not—it's privatized in the sense that it's kind of gutted, and and one and Uber and then these kinds of lift uh, services are imagined as doing the job that public transportation used to do. Um, they've also been interested in selling off hospitals. So all these services that um, the working poor are the ones who need the most, because of course. The rich in Puerto Rico, they, can, they, they have cars or they can afford to take Uber. Um, they have private insurance. They can send their kids to college in the United States. And so the wealthy in Puerto Rico will not be impacted by these measures. But of course, the disadvantage the, in Puerto Rico will be directly impacted.
2: Let's talk about the Jones Act uh, for a second. First of all, tell us what it is. And then what are the politics around it being waived last week?
3: So the Jones Act has several aspects to it, but that the one related to shipping and what's being debated right now um, was established in the 1920s as a response to the effects of the First World War, where the German Navy had sunk, you know, a great number of U.S. ships. And so its goal was to ensure that the United States would have a healthy shipbuilding industry and, and a strong, you know, marine presence. It's, those who defend it, um, they, they they see, you know, they highlight that goal and they also point to the fact that it does um, ensure that the boats that are used by the U.S. government, that they follow all EPA regulations and that, the, you know, there's good working conditions for the sailors, you know, on these boats. And this is part of why labor unions have not supported the repeal of the Jones Act because they, they feel that it's important to provide safe work environments and living wages and medical care for those who are working on the boats. But then the problem is that for places like Puerto Rico, the Virgin Islands, Hawaii, Alaska, you know, these sites outside of the continental United States, they are impacted in particular ways by the Jones Act because the Jones Act applies to the entirety of the United States. And what it stipulates is that you cannot have a foreign vessel going from one U.S. port to another. So this means that if uh, someone wanted to send goods to Puerto Rico and they went first to Florida, they couldn't then go to Puerto Rico and vice versa. So it basically limits the kind of trade routes that can be established. And so as you can imagine, it's it's very costly for a, a, a foreign supplier to make a trip just to Puerto Rico and to not go to Florida and to other sites along the way. So what happens is that everything arrives in in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and there it's um, taken off the boats and repackaged and put on other U.S. boats that then bring it to Puerto Rico, to the Virgin Islands, et cetera. And so it means that everything that that arrives is much more expensive because we're paying for double transportation, right? Then in addition, this means that the arrival of, of ships in Puerto Rico has been concentrated in the San Juan port. And we're seeing the effects of that now where everyone's talking about how all these um, goods that have been donated or, 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 or sold um, to Puerto Rico, they are bottlenecked either in Florida where there's not enough ships to get them to Puerto Rico or at the port in San Juan where they're saying there's not enough um, trucks to get them distributed through the rest of the island. So one of the arguments that has long been made for repealing the Jones Act for Puerto Rico is that it would allow uh, the island to establish multiple ports that would make sense, you know, for distributors coming from different parts of the world. If the Jones Act were not in place and if these other ports could have been developed, right now you could have aid coming in from different sources and through different ports into the island. So uh, Donald Trump, he uh, allowed for the Jones Act to be lifted for 10 days it's important to say that 10 days is not enough time for when you're talking about something that moves as slowly as a, sh- a huge barge of goods, you know, like how many, how many ships could, could manage to get to Puerto Rico in 10 days? You know, this still doesn't help with the situation of the goods that are, that are bottlenecked in San Juan or in Florida. So people have long been asking and and hopefully this will be a moment where there could be the necessary pressure placed on Congress to, Let Puerto Rico be outside of the Jones Act.
1: So I know that uh, your family had just arrived from Puerto Rico. And so if we can talk about them for a minute and just what the situation was like. As they were leaving, what the process was like to get here and just kind of what the immediate future looks like for them right now.
3: You know, my mom, she she spent the storm alone in her house and she was very scared. I mean, it was it's important to to remember what exactly Puerto Ricans have gone through. They've gone through two back to back hurricanes. Um, The experience of surviving these storms is not of itself um, a a traumatic event, you know, they they were in their house for hours with uh, like something that is akin to a tornado, a tsunami and and an earthquake all wrapped into one. And so then after that traumatic experience, they've gone for a week, more than a week without running water and basic services. So um, although my mom, she had no real desire to leave Puerto Rico before this, um, we decided that it might be best for her, to, to come stay with me for a little while until things get better. However, after we, we made these plans, we realized that it's really unclear how long that period of time will be given What's happening right now? I mean, you have the aftermath of the storm, the the immediate needs of people to get food and water, but you also have this looming public health concern as these uh, floodwaters that haven't that haven't um, receded they they pose a threat in terms of mosquitoes and, and, and mosquito borne illnesses and also um, you know things that could emerge i mean as as the worst case scenario is a is a cholera epidemic you know uh on a on a smaller scale you already have um outbreaks of things like conjunctivitis because of a lack of proper sanitation right now people who aren't able to wash their hands frequently um so we really don't know what's going to happen and so my my mom and my grandma have a, arrived here in the united states and they they made their peace with, with leaving Puerto Rico for an indefinite amount of time. They're really, they're not sure when they're going to come back.
1: It must be just such a surreal experience to leave under those circumstances, to just leave your home and not know the next time you'll see it and what you'll see when you get back to it.
3: To hear them describe it, th- they feel like they've lived something that they'd seen in movies and on the news. Like they, they, they feel like like refugees leaving a war zone, you know? And and, and the experience of leaving was very complicated. They had to get to the airport at 9 a.m. for a 5 p.m. flight. The airport had no electricity or running water. Um, Imagine an airport that's built to be fully air conditioned and it's it's just like a sealed up hot container. Um, And they said that it was full of elderly people, um, disabled people, you know, folks who really need access to basic services and that there was a real sadness in the air, you know, of of
2: what people had experienced and, and a kind of Feeling that their future is very uncertain. As we talked about earlier when we were talking about the Jones Act, Donald Trump's response has been predictably terrible. But I was wondering for context, given Puerto Rico's history, how is it different or is it different from how other presidents have responded to the political and material needs of people in Puerto Rico?
3: You know, it, it, it's easy right now to to wax nostalgic for the Obama administration, and I'm certain that Obama wouldn't have called Puerto Ricans ingrates or, or, or said that they weren't doing enough for themselves. Um, but at the same time, if you look at the Obama administration, they did nothing for Puerto Rico in, in relation to its economic crisis. It's under Obama that all these austerity policies were put into place. Um, so... I don't know that there would have been a, a a large difference in terms of of the actual aid that would have been offered. There certainly would have been more respect um, and more empathy, perhaps, shown um, for the suffering of Puerto Rican lives right now. It, it, it's still we, we still need to see what exactly the the aid released by FEMA will be in the end. Um, but it's I, I I guess it a lot of people have been comparing. Trump's response to Bush's response under Katrina in New Orleans, but it would be interesting to maybe also compare with Obama's uh, reaction to Hurricane Sandy and how things were or were not expedited in that case.
1: So it sounds like, I mean, just the entire conversation, you're describing an enormous vacuum um, of both government neglect and malicious policy that's created this crisis. Um, So I'm wondering just what people can do to, you know, in small ways and big ways, fill in some of that vacuum and, and help.
3: So, yeah, there are these grassroots organizations that they can, you know, donate funds to if they wish. But I think also it's, it's important for people in the mainland U.S. to tell their politicians that Puerto Rico matters to them because Puerto Ricans don't have representation in in the Congress. They're nobody's constituents. And so it's really up to people in the mainland U.S. to tell the politicians that that are supposed to respond to them and listen to them to tell them that Puerto Rico is an important issue for them as well.
2: All right, uh, Dr. Bonilla, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you. on to our favorite and best segment of the show, How to Handle the Dicks, where every week we talk about what we're doing to cope with this new stressful reality that we all live in. Katie, how are you handling the dicks? So I would say that something I do that benefits
1: nobody but me, and actually I don't even think benefits me all that much, <laughs> is uh, I um, watch Guy's Grocery Games, which is… What is that? …supermarket sweep meats, uh chopped with Guy Fieri.
0: <gasps> So where you are right now is a gigantic warehouse. It's never been a grocery store before, but now it is home to Flavortown Market.
2: <laughs> oh my God. No, my boyfriend has told me about, cause he hates Guy Fieri with a passion. I mean, I'm not here
1: to necessarily defend Guy Fieri, but I will say that I have found myself uh, streaming a couple of episodes and, you know, it's fine. I actually think it's fine. The Flavortown market is abundant. The people run through the aisles. They grab what they need. Like, I think that there's a nice sense of camaraderie among the contestants. It's not actually really that cutthroat. And I would just say that, like, Guy Fieri is fine. But I would give you, like, a dosage recommendation, which is, like, Every three weeks, watch two episodes, maybe. (laughs) Any more than that is too much because it's just too much. You shouldn't watch that much, much guys, grocery (laughs) games. But I, like,
2: think every once in a while, like, why not? If I go home and suggest this to him, he's gonna, there will probably be a fight. I mean, that's (laughs) fair. (laughs) Like, I think that probably there should be. So on a very related note, my how to handle is that I indulged in, well, one episode of reality TV, because I don't usually watch reality TV. And uh, my boyfriend and I decided we were going to attempt to watch Bridezilla's, but we couldn't do it totally sober. So we turned it into a drinking game, and we made the rules. Like, anytime we hear the word bitch, anytime there's like a weird sound effect to like add to the drama, Anytime there's, like, a logistical fight that ends a friendship, but then they make up by the end. So the rules were spot on, and we <laughs> ended up drinking quite a bit during one episode. But the episode was really hard to watch, and I it wasn't even, like, fun. It wasn't, like, a fun hate-watching. It was just hate. Like, I was just angry. I think that maybe— one that is a bit lighter, like Guy's Grocery Games. Okay, I I definitely cannot suggest that one. But <laughs> I mean like if I open to others. <laughs> if
1: you want to get like high-minded
2: about guys' grocery games, it is it,
1: it could be an allegory for austerity, which is something that we're confronted <laughs> with on the daily with this administration, in that the supermarket, as I said, Flavortown Market is fully stocked. There is no shortage. It is full abundance. And yet every challenge, Guy is imposing these arbitrary restrictions and to create the impression of <laughs> scarcity, right? So it's like, you can only grocery shop for items that begin with R. You can only spend $6.79 on a three-course meal. These are Total fictions that create the illusion of not having enough, and it's only to the benefit of Guy, the ruling class of Flavortown Market... <laughs> Uh, And and it just, it leads to struggle amongst the contestants.
2: Katie, this is brilliant. And now I just have to watch it. I mean, (laughs) I did get my PhD
1: in um, sheltering fragile egos. And this was part of my research.
2: And also, Guy Fieri, if you're listening, you should hire Katie to do some of your
1: PR. I mean, I know I'm only a temporary co-host for the day, but come on the show, Guy. (laughs) Come on, Big Time Dicks. Join them.
2: Come on for a combo. We would love to have you on. Mr. Guy Fieri. I mean, okay, the
1: last thing I'll say about Guy Fieri. (laughs) No, it probably doesn't matter. But one time there was a very nice veteran man who was one of the cooks on the show and he was just like doing a great job and being so nice to everybody. And then there's this like guy moves around to the different kitchen setups and, like, says, like, hey, what's up? Like, blah, 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 and makes small talk. And he said to the guy, and he's, like, in the middle of, like, frying onions and something because it's, like, really fast-paced and timed, and you have to, like, move really quickly and not get distracted. (laughs) And, like, Guy Fieri goes up to him, and he's, like, just want to thank you for your service. And the guy's, like, oh, yeah, okay. Like, yeah. And then he's, like, freedom isn't free. (laughs) awkward moment <laughs> and I don't know why they left it in the show <laughs> I was, like, it was like no it just landed so poorly and I was like man the editor's gonna cut that much like maybe the editor yeah, will cut this but Please,
2: please cut please, out any please. of the awkward drops to Levi our producer <laughs> like this one yeah please cut
1: me from this
2: podcast <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to Big Time Dicks and thank you so much to Dr. Yarimar Bonilla for joining us. This show is produced by Levi Sharp with editorial oversight by Kate Dries. Mandana Mofiti is our executive director of audio. We featured music by Stuart Wood and Aaron Leader. This episode was mixed by Jamie Colazzo Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts so that other people can find the show. You can also find us on Panoply, NPR One, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Got a big-time dick you want to tell us about? Send a voice note or email to bigtimedicks
1: at jezebel.com or tweet at Jezebel using the hashtag bigtimedicks. We'll see you next Tuesday, and who knows what the world will look like then.